The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, I'm Angela Moore, Retirement Editor for MarketWatch. Joining me today is Anne Lester, Retirement Expert. Anne, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, so you're a Retirement Expert. Tell me a little bit about how you got there. Uh, What's your background and what are you working on now? Well, I I always choke a little on the expert thing because one of the things I'm working on now is a book for Gen Z and millennials. And the book starts off with a a couple of stories about how I did everything wrong myself. And, (laughs) you know, I spent 30 years, uh, just about 30 years at JP Morgan, um, most recently as head of retirement solutions uh, and built the target date funds there. And it, it wasn't until it was my job to figure out how to help other people save for retirement that I actually managed to start doing it for myself too. So it was a little bit of physician heal thyself for me. Um, but what yeah. I'm really doing now is is trying to figure out ways to help people save, to help people get over their fear um, and shame and guilt that they might be feeling about their own financial situation, which I think is one of the massive barriers we don't talk about enough. Um, and to get out there and help uh, help people through a variety of boards I'm on and other activities I'm doing. But it's it's really about uh, helping to move the needle. Okay. Well, you caught me there with your all the mistakes you've made. I love that. Yeah. Give us a few mistakes you've made. How did you screw up and recover? Well, you know, I'm I'm a spender. Um, I'm just a spender. And, you know, when I was a little kid, somebody would give me money. And the first thing I would think of is, oh, goody, what can I buy with this? And it's, I always have been a spender and I like nice things. And it's, it's really been difficult for me to, to figure out how to create guardrails for myself that stop me from spending money, frankly. Um, and, and the big, the biggest thing for me was understanding a little more about how people's brains work and really becoming much better versed in behavioral finance and like what we're hardwired to do as human beings and to, to stop blaming myself for the poor judgment I was exhibiting when I, you know, bought a baby grand piano instead of paying my credit card debt off or, you know, decided to remodel the house again or wanted to go on vacation. And, you know, those are all really natural impulses that people have. And to me, the, the biggest thing for me, and I, in talking to other people, I think it's, it's a source of, of, of one of the reasons why people don't stop and try to get their arms around the problem is it just feels overwhelming, but also they feel so much shame because, because, mm-hmm. you know, I could hear my mother nagging me in the back of my head and, you know, you should know better. Didn't we teach you better? You know, and right. Like, right. I don't want to think about it. Right. And that's, <laughs> that's the worst thing you can do. Right. Well, that's, that's great. Um, okay. So myth busting, that's something you really do a lot in your work. And that's a bit of what you're talking about right now. What are some of the misconceptions that you hear from people in your work? And how do you try to set them on the right path, or at least make them not feel so bad about these wrong ideas they have? Well, so so one of them maybe is this is all my fault, right? Um, And, you know, 
One of the things I think about a lot is something that happened to me when I was a little kid. I was three or four, and I was supposed to be playing quietly in my room by myself, which if you've had a three-year-old, you know, it's kind of a recipe for a disaster. I think my mom right. was trying to take a nap with my brand new baby brother. And I tried to get a puzzle off the shelf and managed to pull down this whole stack of wooden puzzles and the shelf oh. on top of me, which oh my gosh. was not, not, not a happy moment for anybody. And I just remember feeling like, how could I have done this to myself? And just being surrounded by this enormous mess and and just feeling so bad, right? My brother was crying. I think my mom was crying. We were all yeah. crying. And, yeah. and, you know, I have so much compassion for that exhausted mother um, oh, of mine. Yes. Who, we were so too. desperately <laughs> trying to go to sleep, right? But, but as a three-year-old, all I knew was that I had made this big mess and it was all my fault. And it's like, well, okay, so... Why was I left by myself at three in a room that wasn't adequately <laughs> childproof with shelves that weren't screwed down to the wall with something that wasn't easily able for like like there's a whole cascading series of things that right. caused that to happen and yet I did it right it was all me I was the one who pulled that puzzle down and mm -hmm. so I think the finance I, I just love that framing for the situation people find themselves in with you know so many financial services and products and credit cards for instance that don't have. I mean, we're all adults and have, you know, um, choice and are agents of free will and agency, right? So people should be trusted to take care of themselves. And yet and our yet. own wiring, right, often prevents us from understanding the consequences longer term. So, you yeah. know, I think one myth alone is, you know, thinking that this is all you and you can exhibit free will and, and do all the right things. And I, I think it does take a lot more to help us, which is why, you know, one of the things I'm so personally excited about is all of the things we're seeing in the 401k space about automation, because that mm -hmm. is a great way to, to help create guardrails for yourself. If the money comes out of your account, you don't spend it. Yeah. Um, I think for me, again, personally, when I realized that the reason I was doing all of these stupid things with my money wasn't because I was bad, but because I was wired to do them, I was like, oh, all right, well, let me set up some guardrails for myself. Yeah. Right? Let me Let me automate savings. Let me say, I won't set foot in this store unless I know I need a new piece of clothing. I'm kind of a clothing hound. Um, yeah. And so like, if I just don't let myself window shop, I don't buy things. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of starting to unpick your own, your own triggers that, that I think can help you do that. So one myth is just, you're in charge of this and it's all your fault, right? That's mm -hmm. just not true. I mean, sort of yes. And I guess another one is, and I hear this a lot from young people. I hear this from my own kids, right. Who are in their twenties and just starting out as I'll never be able to, I think it yeah. is absolutely 100% true that it is more challenging financially now than it was for people in the fifties and sixties. I don't think that it's harder for people today to save than it ever was in the course of human history. I think you know, one of the things we do is anchor on, you know, what we think normal is. And I think the fifties and sixties, you know, when we saw so much wealth creation and the boomers able to so easily, mm. which wasn't actually true for them either, save right. money is 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 a little bit of an anomaly. And and so I think we do ourselves a disservice when we compare ourselves to like the most perfect moment in time for wealth creation and say, oh, we can't do it. It'll never happen. Um, yeah. So that's number one. Number two, I think one of the difficulties when you're young is understanding how long it takes for compound returns to start working. You know, it takes decades to really get the yeah. benefit of that. And I think when you're in your 20s, it's just so hard to see that math start to work. And then you, you know, throw a bear market on top of it, which we've had a couple of yeah. in the last few years. And it makes it really hard for people to see through that. So 
you know, another myth I think is the system isn't going to work for me. I can't trust it. It won't work. Um, which leads me to another thing I see a lot, which is people trusting a little too much some of the anecdata and storytelling that you see on social media, which uh-huh. I think is incredibly powerful. And I love the fact that there's so many peer influencers helping people. I think that's incredibly powerful. I do think, though, that there are a few things people should be watching for. One of them is absolutes. You should never or you should always. I'm like, ooh, it's never, never or always. Right. Um, and I also have heard people tell me that they believe the influencers because their peers, unlike, you know, the big bank or the financial services company that's just trying to sell them something. And I'm like, you, you do know that there's an economic model behind right. people on social media, like my economic model. I'm very transparent about it as I'm publishing a book in a year and mm-hmm. I really want to sell it. Please buy my yeah. book. Yeah. That's my only economic angle. Other people are getting, you know, money for eyeballs on their page or they're right. featuring links to things or they're doing, they're talking up an investment. We saw some of that with Bitcoin and some of the, mm-hmm. you know, GameStop kind of stock stuff. So I do think people always have to think about buyer beware whenever you're consuming information and think about why somebody's saying what they're saying. So I'll stop there. Right. I could go on and on and on. Oh, no, I know. I, me too. Okay. So first of all, I love the word anecdata. Yeah. I, that's a beautiful thing. Um, very funny. So let's say you're a young person starting out. You've got student loans. You, you have a job, hopefully, right? And yeah. you want to, you've got a lot of, um, uh, a lot of demands on your money. How do you get started saving for retirement? I mean, mentally, it's hard to think, well, in 40 years, I'm going to be glad I did this because actually right. in one month, you've got to pay your first student loan bill or whatever. How do you get yep. started when you're um, a young person, you know, just getting going? So I think there, there are a couple of things. One is, I, I don't know that people talk about this much, but it's okay. And perhaps one should expect to be leading a lifestyle that is less affluent than the one you were living as a child in your parents' house, possibly, right? Depending on where your what your circumstances were and where you came from. That's not true for everybody, but that's something I talk to my kids about. Like, guess what? <laughs> You're not going to be, you know, getting to do the, go out to dinner on mom and dad's tab anymore, right? If you're, if you're, footing the bill for some of this stuff, like you should, you should assume that you're going to take a a lifestyle cut while you build back up those resources. Now, again, Mm -hmm. that is a very uh, different discussion to have for different people from different backgrounds. But I I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with saying, look, when you start out, it's going to be tight for a while. So depending again on your circumstances, that's one thing. Um, Another thing is assuming you have to do everything at once, like certainly you have to pay your bills, you have to pay for an apartment, you have to eat, um, you have to pay your student loans off if you have them. So I think being being really focused on what you have to do, what you'd like to do, like needs, wants and desires, like there's Mm -hmm. the needs which you got to cover there, the wants, which are I'd like to be able to go out with my friends once a week. And then there's the desire, which is I'd like to go on vacation. Right. So. Think about what's a desire, what's a want, and what's a need. Um, and then last but not least, you don't have to start saving the mythical 10 to 15% that everybody says you should get to on day one. You can start really small and slow. Just start. And that's one of the biggest messages I give people is start at 1% if you don't think you can afford to do anything because that's practically free. 
right. try to get to, if you've got a 401k plan at work or another workplace retirement, get the free money from your employer, which is the match. Like that's mm-hmm. the most important, biggest source of return you're going to have is, is the free money, certainly for the first five or 10 years. So make sure you're getting that. And then wait until you get a raise to up your savings rate. But, you know, okay. most people starting out, again, in many jobs that offer plans will typically get a raise every year. And if you can save some of that raise and direct mm-hmm. that into your 401k plan, you will find yourself at 10 or 15% savings, which is what I and many people would say is, you know, the right amount to be saving. You'll get there in five to 10 years. You don't have to right. get there on day one. Do it And because slowly. it's like, it's your raise, you might not notice it because it's exactly. new money. It's painless, yeah. right? This whole save more tomorrow thing, the Nobel Prize winning theory really works. It really works. You might even be able to sign up for that automatically, mm-hmm. right? So you don't even have to make a decision. That's a great way to do it. Yes, that's that's even better. Okay, I, I'm supposed to say a shout out to our audience. Don't forget to send in questions if you have them for Anne. That said, we have like a gazillion questions in the queue. So I'm going to go through a couple of highlights and then we're going to jump right in. Um, you talked a little bit about um, the emotions that are wrapped up around money. And you know the shame, the guilt. How do you break free of that? To, do you need to? How do you do that? It's 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 a heavy topic. I mean, you know, I, it, there's such destructive emotions, right? And I, I know everybody here has felt that. Um, it, 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 it's, you know, maybe I'm a nerd, but for me, just understanding why I was making decisions the way I was making them, and that there was this sort of short term, again, Nobel prizes have been won on this stuff, but you know, this is the fast thinking and the slow thinking, right? The, mm-hmm. the survival brain that says you got to grab this now before somebody snatches it away from you, right? That, that the delayed gratification thing, right? The, the more I understood why I was doing that, the easier it was for me to say, oh, okay, I'm just doing that because that's the way I've been trained to behave or my, I've evolved to behave. It's not a personal willpower failure of mine. Right. And, and I started getting out of a situation and, and for anybody out there who's ever tried to lose weight, right? Like if you're trying to lose weight, leaving a pack of Oreos on the counter is not a smart strategy, right? Because you're tempting yourself every time you walk by that pack of Oreos, like I'm strong, I'm not going to do it. Right. That's a really terrible way right? Why do to that? help yourself. Well, yeah. And I think with money, we don't understand how much we are constantly being bombarded to spend money, right? It's, yeah. it's in advertising, it's in, you know, our Instagram feeds when we see somebody else's fun vacation. Oh, I want to, I mean, it's just, it's never ending. It's so hard to, to get away from. So I think part of forgiveness is just understanding that we're in a, an environment that's designed in, and, you know, Madison Avenue, I think, figured out behavioral finance way before anybody knew it existed. Right. right? And, and, and figured out how to hit those buttons in us and get us to respond to those, those, those prompts and stimulus. So to me, it, a huge part of it is just understanding that we are in this ecosystem that was not designed to help us do this very hard thing. And that, mm-hmm. that right away, like me, as that three-year-old sitting on the floor, just surrounded by all that wreckage, right? Like it wasn't my fault that the shelf wasn't screwed down. Yeah. By pushing past the immediate bad feeling. I a lot did of times this. We it's my bad fault, feeling, right? And then we kind of run away from it because we don't want to think about it because it feels bad, but kind of pushing past that and seeing what you mentioned, like, why was I supposed to do a puzzle that was on the sixth shelf? And why did I, I have no super, all these things that kind of give you 
you know, a clearer picture of what was really happening and maybe help you going forward. Compassion, right? It's an, a, yeah. a word that's easy to overuse, but it's having compassion for yourself. And, you know, maybe in some really small, finite number of circumstances, there are people or events where you deliberately make what you know is a really stupid decision. But usually, you know, you're trying to do something that you thought, like my buying a piano when I got my first bonus check, right, with money I should have used to pay off my credit card bills, like I was a pianist and I wanted to practice mm. and like that was part of my identity and I really right. wanted a piano. So, you know, that that um, to me was a really important thing for me. Now, it, it, again, in hindsight, it was an absolutely stupid thing for me to have done with my money, but yeah. um, I didn't know that when I did it. So I can have some compassion for that for that 20 two-year-old who didn't right. understand how credit card debt worked. Right. And probably that 22-year-old probably worked really hard at this job and thought this piano playing part of me isn't getting any attention and let me treat that part of me because she has been dormant for so long or something. Absolutely. Not that we need to like go on the couch on a therapy session here, but you know, but, you can but, see it, right? But that's a good point, right? There is some, some element. And again, self-care is a word that gets thrown about a lot, but um, as is retail therapy, but some, <laughs> some of this does involve like looking back at decisions that you've made sometimes and just thinking, wow, that, that person did these for the following reasons. I can have a lot of compassion for that person myself, right? At the age of 21 or 22 or over, I guess it was 22, who didn't understand the consequences of the decisions she was making and knew that there was this hole in her life, right? Like I can see why you made that decision. It wasn't because I was bad or stupid, right? Um, it was because I didn't know any better. So, okay, yeah. what what do I do now to make sure? Well, I make sure I pay my credit cards off every month. And if I can't pay it off, I don't buy it, right? But right. That's, that took me a while to figure out. No, that's that's a great point. Now, I'm going to jump into some listener questions. Um, we have a question from Mary. Uh, she said she's had a longtime equities, aggressive approach to her retirement portfolio. And that was great until 2022. Yeah. She said she's from six to 13 years away from retiring. Uh, what's the recommended way to begin reallocation? She does not, she prefer not to lock in losses or, you know, minimize that. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing, I, I guess a couple of different thoughts, right? So I used to manage JP Morgan's target date funds. And one of the things that we really wrestled with when we were coming up with the glide path, right, which is the de-risking strategy into retirement was, was how quickly to do that. Because the yeah. faster you de-risk or the earlier you de-risk, the more returns you leave on the table, because over time equities will do better than other assets, including fixed income. Um, the challenge is, though, that if the market's down right when you want to retire, right, you, yeah. you own all those losses and then you start selling and, and truly locking them in. So I guess I'd say, I'd say a couple different things. One is um, the standard de-risking strategy that that I and many others have, you know, would have recommended and have used forever, which is to de-risk into fixed income also wouldn't have helped you very much because fixed income, this is a very peculiar environment in which yeah. both equities and fixed income really got hurt simultaneously. So cash was really the only place to hide, honestly, uh, lately. Um, that said, you know, dollar cost averaging is a real thing and it allows you to gradually shift your asset allocation. You're never going to get it exactly right, but you're also never going to get it exactly wrong. And I think right. one of the, again, speaking about sort of some of the psychology of this all is accepting that you're not going to get it right. 
there is no right answer here because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So, you know, as soon as you let go of this quest for perfection and doing it perfectly, I think it's a lot easier to say what's good enough, mm-hmm. right? And good enough is not selling equities when you're panicking at the bottom of the market. Okay. Good enough involves looking at rolling five-year returns and looking back and going, you know, my returns have been fine. If I sell a little now, I'm not locking in this terrible loss over the long horizon of my investing, right? So some of it is also, you we all, and this is a, a behavioral thing, right? We anchor at the high market and said, I could have had, and I didn't do it. And I made this mistake yeah. and it was wrong. And it's like, well, if you look back five years, I think I'm pretty darn happy with where my portfolio is, even though I, you know, I'm down over the last year or yeah, down. Yeah. So, okay. Some of it is that, um, but I, I would strongly urge you to think about over the course of the next sort of three to six years, starting to build up and build it up by rebalancing your portfolio systematically, um, some cash reserves so that in that first year or two of retirement, you don't have to sell anything. So that's one strategy. The second is to think about what you want that sort of retirement equity allocation to be. Again, many people will argue and fight. I used to do this all the time about the right answer, but you know, most people would think something between 40 and 60% in equities is a good portfolio to have in retirement. So if you're, let's say at 80 or 90% equities now, right? How do I get from 90 to 60, let's say hypothetically? Um, a really easy way to do it is to straight line it over the next six years and say, what should I be doing every month or couple of months to rebalance down to that goal? Again, you're not locking in anything massive at once. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to gradually shift that over time. You will do so probably losing a little money right now. Another strategy is to, to wait a little while longer and see if the market recovers. I mean, bottom line, there's no way to know that you will have done the right thing. I think, um, Doing things gradually with small movements over time is a great way to make sure that there isn't a violent um, sort of course correction. The way we did it at JP Morgan in our target date funds was to de-risk over 10 to 15 years and do so in like sort of one to 3% increments gradually over that period of time. Um, Other other target date providers who are de-risking as well do it a little more rapidly and and wait a little longer. So like I said, there's not necessarily a right way to do it. I think the wrong way to do it is to wait till the year before you retire and do it all at once. The other wrong way to do it is to wait for the market to sell off and go, whoops, better not lose any more and sell everything in. That's a terrible way to do it. But other than that, they're kind of versions of different right answers. So Mary, who asked the question, she has with a six to 13 year horizon, like she's in a good position to kind of make yeah, some absolutely. gradual moves. Okay. Absolutely. Well, that's good. hundred percent. Yeah. All right. So, um, well, this is a hot topic. Um, we can just touch on it. Um, it's about social security. It's from someone named Charles. He wants to know if social security is safe. Charles, such a great question. Um, I think social security is safe. I think the U S government is not going to do away with social security. I think a different question is, Will everybody who is currently alive continue to get exactly the same benefits that Social Security says they will today? And I think the math would tell us the answer to that is no. Um, If Social Security, if there's no reform whatsoever to Social Security and the government does nothing, um, benefits will get cut. I forget the year 2034, I think was the last one I saw. Something like that, yeah. By about 25%, but they won't go to zero. Now, 
I think it is extraordinarily unlikely that that will happen. Um, I do know in my living memory, Social Security was already saved once uh, right. back in, I think it was the 80s, yeah. when they restructured the, the formulas and stretched normal retirement age from 65 to 67. So that's the date you would get your full Social Security payment. And you know you could still claim it at 62 if you wanted to, but you'd have to wait until 67 to get your full allocation. And then you know another strategy, which I, I personally plan to take, is to wait until 70 to claim my social security because then I'll get 125% of that promised amount. Mm -hmm. I do believe it is probable that those formulas will be adjusted. I also believe it is probable that they will be adjusted so that just like in the 80s when that happened, it will happen for workers who are younger in the future. So I, I don't think it's likely that they will do drastic things to people who are currently getting social security today. I, I think it's very unlikely that those benefits will be touched. I think it's probably unlikely that my benefits will get touched and I'm 58 today. I think it's possible there may be some taxation on social security benefits that may shift. And again, you know, that's a, that's, I don't want to get into politics, but, but I do think there's a, a conversation that we can have about the best way to ensure that this incredible benefit is there for everybody in a, in a way that's fair. Um, but it's not going to go away in a puff of smoke. That's for sure. Okay. That's good to hear. Thank God. <laughs> no, um, it's not. I mean, it, it just isn't. Even If yeah. nobody does anything at the worst, our benefits will go down by a quarter. That will be terrible and horrible. Yeah, and I'm not saying not it's good. a good outcome, but that's not going away. And guess what? And I think it's another 30 years. It'll be back again. So it's not even like it, it, it will adjust over time. This is not a permanent state of, of affairs that, that this kind right. will happen even. So it's yeah. it sounds terrible. It is terrible. But I, I am I am I am quite hopeful that it will get resolved. Yeah. And the um, age increase that you were talking about that mm-hmm. they started in, I think it was, I think it was 83. Um, yeah. That was the, the full retirement age went from 65 to 67 stretched out over 40 years. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, you know, it's a month, about a year slow or something, steady, you know? Yeah. 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 So, so, so the, the hope with anything that gets changed with any kind of benefit is that it gives people time to plan for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a whole other conversation we can have about, on the one hand, people are living longer. On the other hand, different people from different demographic groups and or in different workplace occupations may or may not be able to work as long. And again, that's that's a whole other kettle of fish. But I mean, sort of if you just look at society as a whole and the math, I think it is probably not irrational to think that there will be some small gradual shifts and that that's probably a fair thing to do. Nobody will okay. like it because nobody wants something taken away from them, but it's, no. it's, if we want it to last, that's what we'll need to do. Okay. All right. We've got a question from Kumu who asks, where do you begin if you've never really thought of retirement before? I don't have much savings and just turned 60. So hmm. might be time for catch up contributions for yeah. Ms. Fior so for sure. This, this is a bit of a tricky spot to be in. I think you know, one of the one of the challenges about retiring, and I, I hope and assume that you will be getting Social Security, um, is to think about how long you can keep your income coming in to delay taking Social Security as long as possible, because the longer you wait, the larger that check will be. So that's, you know, strategy number one is really think about, um, if you can, continuing to, to generate work working income until ideally you're 70, because then your benefit will be way bigger than it is if you take it at 62. Um, so that would be strategy number one to think about how to, how to how to maintain your working income as long as possible. 
Um, I think Angela is 100% right. Um, when you think about making contributions to your, if you have a 401k to that or to an IRA, mm -hmm. is to understand that you can make those contributions higher than typical because you're allowed catch-up contributions. I think it's after the age of 55. Um, or it's actually 50. 50, yeah. See, yep. so yeah, I'm, I'm, out, I'm uh, out of practice here. But after the age of 50, you're allowed to, to make larger contributions. Um, you should definitely, uh, to the extent that you can do that. And then it will feel hard to save money that you haven't been saving. It means basically taking a consumption cut. But the more you can think about dialing back some of your spending now, you can do it a little more gradually than you might have to than when you retire. The more money you'll be able to save and the, the more gradually you'll kind of get used to a slightly lower consumption level. And that will make it easier for you to then maintain that lifestyle and that consumption level in retirement. So I think, you know, if you're 60 and really don't have very many savings, if you look at your projected social security benefit and know that you're going to have trouble making ends meet on that, um, it's really important to now, while you're still working, start thinking about some strategies, whether it's getting a roommate, whether it's relocating or downsizing so that you can build a longer runway for yourself to really start saving uh, aggressively because it is probable that you will need to, you know, make your savings last until at least your mid eighties or nineties. So I, I do think that, you know, taking a hard look at your anticipated social security income and understanding what the, the hole is, if you will, between what that income will be and what you think you're currently spending and start again, gradually trying to see how you can get that into a little more balance now will let you save more and make more of those catch up contributions. Okay. That's great. Now I've got a question from Steve. He was wondering, is the 4% rule for how much to withdraw in retirement still valid, or do you have other Ooh. suggestions based on your research? This is a hot Ooh, one. Ooh, that's such a hot <laughs> one. So, yeah. Steve, yeah, we, I, I, I actually helped write a white paper about that 10 or 15 years ago. Is is, uh, is the 4% rule broken? And there's been some, again, if you want to really geek out on this, there's a lot of research out there. I know Morningstar and, and others have published a lot on this lately. Um, the 4% rule is, I think, a really helpful rule of thumb that is broadly speaking, still relevant. And that 4% rule for anybody who doesn't know what it is, just says, let's say you have a million dollars invested in a 60-40 stock bond portfolio. You know, the research looking backwards at history would say that you can afford to take out 4% of that a year or $40,000, increase that by the amount of inflation every year, and not run out of money before you die. Have that portfolio last for 30 years, I believe is what he did. So there are a couple of exceptions to that. One is if inflation is super high, right, you'll start taking more and more money out and you will probably run out of money. The second one is if the market goes down and you're selling and spending, the money that you've taken out of the markets, right, at a loss will never recover and grow. So to, to have the 4% rule work, right, you need sort of normal-ish markets, which is sort of mid to high single digit returns and inflation to stay roughly in the call it two to 5% range. And if those things are true, then the 4% rule actually leaves you often with more money than you started with. So so the, what are the problems with the 4% rule? One is you might run out of money if inflation is super high and or the markets drop a lot at the beginning of your mm -hmm. retirement. The second problem with the 4% rule is that most of the time you don't spend all your money. And if you're 
you know, on a budget and really watching every penny, constraining yourself to the 4% rule can be kind of painful because you may be foregoing experiences, especially early on in retirement, when you would have enjoyed spending the money to see your grandkids or traveling that you wouldn't otherwise do. So what do you do about this? To me, it's, it's, it's kind of a common sense adjustment to the 4% rule, which is to look at what the portfolio has done. And if the market is going up, and has gone up for a couple of years, you can probably afford on a one-time basis to take a little more out than that 4% would imply. And guess what? If you're in an environment like today and the markets are going down, you really do have to think about spending a little less. Um, and that's the way to kind of in real time make some adjustments to the 4% rule. So if the markets are great, you can afford to take money out. If the markets aren't great, guess what? You're going to have to retrench. And I think with some common sense adjustments, that's it's not a it's a reasonable place to start. And then you just have to keep checking in as you get into your 70s and 80s. Guess what? If you have more money than you started with, you could probably spend a little more. Mm -hmm. If you okay. find yourself with that portfolio dwindling more quickly than you would have anticipated, then you really do have to cut back. Yeah, tighten the belt. All right. Now that dovetails perfectly into a question from Scott who asks, what, if any, role should annuities have in retirement? Oh, um, another great question. Yeah. So in the interest of full disclosure, I am an education fellow for the Alliance for Lifetime Income, which is a group that is trying to help people understand the, the benefits as well as the costs of annuities, because uh, certainly in my working lifetime, uh, we would do focus group testing and describe a product that would give you income certainty for life. You would never go down. It was always guaranteed. And people would say, I love it. You'd say it's called an annuity. And they'd say, I hate it. Um, so... I do think annuities can have a bad reputation. Um, there are many, many, and I'm not recommending anything. This is personal opinion territory. There are many kinds of annuities. There are annuities that will pay you a certain amount of money for a fixed amount of time, say five or 10 years. Those can be great ways to get from retirement to when you claim social security. You mm -hmm. know exactly how much money it will cost. You know exactly how much money you'll get back. And it's a way to bridge an income gap, let's say to get to 70 when you can maximize your social security. There's another kind of annuity, which is just a simple annuity, lifetime income, right? Which I'm going to personally buy because with, with my pension money, rather than take it out in a lump sum, because I have a great grandmother who lived to be 105. Um, I have grandparents who lived into their 90s, and I know I'm going to have to worry about longevity risk, right? So knowing that I'll have an income source that will last as long as I do is going to be a very important part of my retirement planning. Um one of the ways I think it's helpful to think about annuities is in cash flow terms. So if you can think about your, your again, going back to needs, wants, and desires, I think it's really helpful to have your needs covered with income you know is coming in. So social security, pensions, and maybe an annuity, right? To get your housing covered, your healthcare payments covered, and a small budget for food. Then you've got wants, which are maybe I'd like to go out to dinner. I'd like to get a steak once a month instead of always eating, you know, tofu or whatever, whatever <laughs> your, your budget choice is or sausage or whatever it is. Right. Um, and then your desires, which is I'd like to take a trip. Right. And I think, you know, the way I like to think about it is if you make sure your needs are met, that allows you to relax and take a little more risk with the rest of your money that's invested so that you can not really be worried about having to move or not paying your, your Medicare premiums or being able to uh, afford your prescriptions. 
And then you can allow yourself to have that sort of voluntary discretionary spending adjust, like I said in the, in the previous answer to the 4% rule, that can adjust a little bit. As the markets are better, you can afford to take maybe a nicer vacation. If the markets are terrible, guess what? You're going to have to postpone that trip. And that that is a way better way of thinking about it to me than, than never quite knowing what's going to happen or having that uncertainty about the future. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an excellent point. Now, uh, we've got a question about long-term care. Mm-hmm. Um, I just lost it here on the sheet, but basically um, the the person who wrote in is in her 50s. She wants to know whether it's too late to buy long-term care. Um, Maybe it's too early. I don't know. What's what's your sense on it? You know, healthcare is such a crazy cost in retirement and a lot of people, you know, with longevity risk and all that are really looking towards long-term care insurance. So I, I will say again, I am not an individual financial advisor. Um, I am not a licensed um, salesperson for any of these products. So, you know, you really do need to speak with someone who's licensed, a licensed representative and maybe get a couple of opinions on this. Um, personally, when I left JP Morgan and retired, um, I was chatting with a, with a friend of mine who's a financial advisor and, and she was just saying, you know, think about it as what will completely derail your retirement. And I guess this is a way I think about risks in general. What is going to be a risk that is catastrophic that I cannot recover from? When people are young and starting out, I say renter's insurance, because you are one careless roommate away or one burst pipe in your building away from having all of your stuff ruined or gone. And that will derail you seriously. It's not very expensive, right? So that's that's a really easy way to think about taking away a systemic risk that is mm-hmm. catastrophic. I think a healthcare long-term care, right, is a catastrophic risk that will destroy your retirement. Um, So what I ended up doing, and not to overly personalize this, but I ended up buying the kind of policy that makes a lot of sense if you're a little younger, right, so in your 40s or 50s, and gives you a cash return. So I think about it as like the cash in my portfolio, I can get it back if some other catastrophe hits. But it will basically flip into long-term, you know, five years, I think, of long-term care that will cover 70% of the average long-term care costs in the state of New Jersey, where I live. Mm-hmm. So I know that that plus Social Security or whatever income I have is going to cover five years of that cost. Now, is five years enough? Hopefully it would be if I if I need it. It, it may not be in some cases. So that's another question. What What's your family history? Um you know, on average, most people need less than than three years, honestly, of long-term care, but there are always outliers to that. So another question is, what are your other resources and what's your fallback plan if, if in fact, it, it your situation changes? So it's a really personal decision, I think, and it really depends a little bit on the resources you have available to you. But I do think it's a question that's very worth asking and, and becoming an informed consumer about because there's so many different kinds of policies and plans now. Yeah, that's really, that's good. And uh, not to, there's not a natural, uh-oh, um, there's not a natural segue to this, but um, we spoke about um, estate planning a little bit yeah. and wills. Um, how young is too young to have a will? I mean, is this something you recommend for everyone or do you have to be a certain age for it? Well, you know, it's interesting when when you, when you we were chatting in, in preparation for this conversation, I thought, oh, I better tell my kids to do that. And they're 25 <laughs> and 23. So I don't, I don't think... Uh, you know, as soon as you have some assets, it's it's something you should think about. And and I was thinking my son, my older son, has got 401k assets and he needs to actually go in and create a beneficiary. I mean, one hopes that his employer made him do it, but like the standard, yeah. you know, answer may not be the right answer, right? So does he want it to go to his brother? Does he want it to roll back to us? Uh, like, you should think about that, Philip. Does he want his 
I will, I will, I will, I won't go into any more detail there. That's his business, not mine, but, but, um, is he watching this? But, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's as soon as you have any assets, it makes a lot of sense and it doesn't have to be complicated. You know, there's, there are online sources that you can download a form. If you've got a simple estate with a very few assets, it's, it's really just, it's, going to be such a helpful thing to to leave to the people you love around you who are going to have to sweep up the pieces and and it's a morbid topic again kind of like this you go back to this fear guilt and shame thing i think another reason retirement planning and end of life planning is so difficult for so many people is cuz there's not really a happy ending at the end of this right so you just don't <laughs> want to think about it um but that that does create unnecessary hardship you know, at a time when people just want to be able to grieve and you don't want to be dealing with forms and legal questions on top of it. I mean, you will have right. enough of that anyway. Let's make it less painful um, if we right. can. So I think it's a great, a great thing to do. Okay. Um, we are not only are we out of time, we are over time. Oh, no. So oh, no. I know right. it's crazy. I could just keep going all day, but um, that's all the time we have. And thank you so much for being here. And I'm saying this from the bottom of my heart. I'm really looking forward to reading your book. Oh, thank you so much. Well, here, yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And audience, thank you for tuning in and for all your amazing questions. We're not able to get to all of them, but um, but they were terrific. So we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. That will be Barron's deputy editor, Alex Yule, and associate editor for technology, Eric Savitz. And they're going to talk about the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. So thank you for listening today. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.